we are incredibly excited to have with us here John Penny, who is a recent Berkman Fellow and then research affiliate. John is a lawyer. He has just completed his doctorate at the Oxford Internet Institute at the University of Oxford. He's also a research fellow at the Citizen Lab and the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Um, he's here today to tell us about his doctoral research, which explores the regulatory chilling effects that may take place online. And one of the reasons that we're especially excited is that, in part, his research relies on data that he found in the, the Lumen Formally Chilling Effects database, although it spans um, a variety of sources, which he's going to tell us about. I should also mention that John is affiliated with the Takedown Project, which is a research collective studying notice and takedown, who have also made use of the Lumen database. But without further ado, I want to let John get to his stuff. John, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Adam. Uh, you know, great to be back at the Berkman Center. Always a thrill to be back. Uh, and also, thank you uh, for you guys for coming today. I know that it's a, such a lovely day outside. You know, the sun is shining. People are smiling. What a perfect day to talk about government surveillance, right? Yes. Um, so, Adam's right. I'm going to be talking a little bit about um, my research at the Oxford Internet Institute. Um, there's the title of the talk. I realized in the description of the talk uh, that I that I intimated that I might talk about the entire thesis. I think I would be torturing you to fit the entire thesis into this uh, next hour. Um, but I do hope to at least uh, focus on two of the sort of key case studies that I have uh, in uh, the doctorate. Um, the doctorate, as you know, focuses on this notion of chilling effects. Now, uh, I'm guessing that most of you have heard this term before, have a sense of what it means, unless you're a refrigeration professional and you have an entire different idea of it. Um, but chilling effects, essentially this idea that laws and certain government actions uh, might have a kind of chilling effect or deterrent effect on certain activities. Now, of course, all laws might have a chilling or deterrent effect, but chilling effects in and of itself is mostly concerned actually with legal activities, activities that are both constitutionally protected, that are even desirous. And so the question is, do certain laws or government actions like surveillance, how does that impact on those kinds of legal protected and even desirous activities? And that's really the focus of my doctorate. Breaking it down, I have Shara up here, which is one of the first sort of legal philosophers to turn chilling effects into a sort of a comprehensive theory of understanding laws under First Amendment doctrine in the US. Um, but surprisingly, within the law, and I'm a lawyer and I have a legal background, I teach law, um, there's been a lot of skepticism uh, amongst uh, uh, courts and lawyers and empirical legal scholars on this question. So I've got two quotes up here, one from an older case many decades ago, um, Laird and Tatum, which involved military surveillance and some, it was a constitutional claim in the case about chilling effects and it was dismissed on standing ground. It's not a, a, not a cognizable injury. Another more recent uh, quote here from some litigation arising with respect to NSA surveillance online, Collaborative Inter Amnesty International, where chilling effects claims were also dismissed for being too speculative. So a lot of skepticism amongst lawyers and judges on this point, but also uh, amongst researchers and scholars from a variety of fields. So this is actually a quote from um, a piece by Kendrick Lizzie Kendrick looking at um, chilling effects, the theory, the idea, and she essentially concludes looking at all the data or all the research that's been done, it has a flimsy empirical basis. Now, granted, there have been a few studies since um, her piece that I think have provided some additional pieces, and I hope some of my research will add to that puzzle so we have a better idea of chilling effects and their impact. And some of the questions that have been raised, I mean, uh, whether they exist, the magnitude and persistence of chilling effects, what are some factors that might influence them? Um, these are all questions that remain uh, unsubstantiated that still need to be addressed with systematic research. Um, some of the challenges why you have this dearth in research is how do you prove a negative? So how do you prove self-censorship? How do you show that somebody would have said something or done something but for this law or but for this surveillance, right? Thankfully, with the internet and some other innovations um, and events like our friend Edward Snowden, some revelations provide with a research opportunity to get into a little bit more on that in a moment, but also the work of people like Adam here at the Berkman Center on the Lumen database, which has been gathering DMCA notices, which also provides an opportunity for research that you wouldn't have had in another time or at another time. 
So here's just the general outline of my thesis. What I try to do, it's, it's structure. I try to triangulate um, this phenomenon of ch regulatory chilling effects online. So I'm looking at um, state action. So that's the Wikipedia case study, which I'll be talking about first. But I also want to look at um, a, a statute that has been criticized for potentially having chilling effects, and that is the DMCA, Digital Millennium Copyright Act. So those are the few case studies I'm going to be looking at today. The first case that I want to start with has to do with NSA prison surveillance and the impact of that on Wikipedia traffic. So coming back to Snowden, what the Snowden revelations in June 2013 really provided an opportunity to investigate some impact of government surveillance on people's activities online. So you had widespread publicity in June 2013. Um, and there's an, an interesting Pew study done in, in, uh, in 2014. The report came out, but the actual survey was done, I believe, in late 2013, where 87% of Americans surveyed in this poll had actually heard of this NSA program, PRISM. Um, so pretty deep penetration in terms of knowledge about an important public fact, right? Uh, another study, it's great to have Alex Matthews here because there's this great study done um, uh, where he co-authored with his partner, Catherine Tucker at MIT, done in 2014, which actually looked at Google search. It actually treated June 2013 as a sort of an exogenous event, and they looked at Google search uh, data post that time, and they actually found a 5% decrease in certain sensitive or embarrassing Google searches, amongst other very interesting insights. And so reading that study actually got to thinking, like, maybe Wikipedia, that might be another site um, that could have been impacted in similar ways. And if you have a chance, go take a look at that study. It's a great study, and I rely um, heavily on it in terms of my research design. Um, I actually was pursuing this research question long before this happened, but it's one of those things that happen when you're doing research which adds a whole new public dimension to what you're doing. So in March of 2015, um, Wikimedia Foundation, the ACLU, bring a lawsuit uh, based on certain constitutional claims against the U.S. government, the National Security Agency, and the U.S. Department of Judgment. Uh, Department of Justice essentially asserting um, this kind of harm to Wikipedia users. So the harm to Wikipedia and the hundreds of millions of people who visit our websites is clear. Pervasive surveillance has a, has a chilling effect. And what my case study essentially does is, is test that claim. So what, a little bit about my methodology and design. So I treat June 2013 as a kind of intervention and I look at um, Wikipedia article traffic before and after. I use what's known as an interrupted time series design, and I also add a comparator, sort of quasi-controls to that to make it more robust. Um, I also use segmented regression. That's my method of analysis. And the term or the period of the study is right up here. So the data comes from January 2012 to August 2014. And essentially, and this is the other great thing about open data platforms, is Wikipedia is great. Wikimedia Foundation offers data um, very openly about its services, its platforms. That kind of openness made this research possible, and I'll hopefully have a chance to ruminate on that at the end of my talk. But I basically constructed this data set based on this Wikipedia traffic. So what Wikipedia articles did I include in this study? So um, following the lead of, of uh, Matthews and Tucker in 2014, I, as a starting point, because there's no sampling frame, there's no frame of knowing what all sensitive content on Wikipedia might be. So what I did was I went to this Department of Homeland Security document, um, which there's not a whole lot of information out there about what it's used for, but it's likely used for monitoring certain keywords online. So the Department of Homeland Security, DHS, monitors these keywords. They have certain categories of different keywords. I think it's to monitor statements on different online platforms to search for national security threats, that sort of thing. So they have a category of keywords relating to terrorism. Because and there were a few media studies done about um, coverage of the Snowden revelations, a lot of the media coverage and news coverage focused or framed it as, you know, these surveillance was done for national security or concerns or to track down and surveil potential terrorism threats. So terrorism was a part of the media narrative during that journalistic reporting of the Snowden revelations. So what I did was I took 48 Wikipedia articles which corresponded with the 41 um, terrorism keywords in the DHS uh, article. The assumption there is not that people have seen this um, DHS set of keywords. It's just a starting point for content that I want to track in this study. 
Now, it doesn't seem like a lot, 48 articles, but actually that represents over 81 million article views over the course of the 32 months. We're talking a lot of people that might be captured by this data. A little bit more to make it more robust, I also uh, use some mechanical turkers to, give, to do a, essentially a privacy evaluation of these terms. The aim here is just to ask whether these terms or this content within the study represent the kind of content that might, might give people or internet users cause co for concern if they knew the government was monitoring their activities online. So let me give you an example of one of the questions that I asked, and this actually tracks similar to what um, um, Alex and Catherine did with their study. Um, so if you knew the government was monitoring um, your online activities, how likely on a scale of one to five would you uh, be willing to avoid sort of content based on this keyword? Right. So one example of an avoidance rating, the avoidance rating on average was 2.62. And if you go through the terms, some obviously have raised greater privacy concerns than others. So um, Wikipedia articles on dirty bomb, car bomb, jihad, those had higher concerns, maybe lower for just certain countries that we might associate with terrorist <laughs> events, less privacy concerns. But on average, what the survey shows was, yes, this was content that would give some internet users cause for concerns. So there is a privacy factor here. All right, so what were my findings when we put it together? So here's my first set of findings. I have a few sets of findings because I think there's some insights that come out as we go through them. Here's the first set of results. So what you're seeing here um, is a graph of the, uh, of the model results. So on the bottom, you have um, 32 months in the study, starting at the beginning of the study. The line cutting down through that, the interrupting event, that's the June 2013 Snowden revelations, right? And so what this is actually doing is looking at trends in the views of these articles before and after this date. The lines that you see on either side are essentially trend lines for the data. So it's basically giving you an indication of the trend based on the data, right? This was actually what I was expecting on, a, on the basis of a chilling effect hypothesis, right? So if people are chilled or concerned about government surveillance, that maybe over the course of that June, as they learn about it, maybe there would be a drop-off in views of this kind of content. But over time, people realize that, of course, I'm not going to go to jail for viewing content on Wikipedia. Why would I be concerned with? So you see on the other side, there's a drop-off, but then it, it, there's not much of a change in the trend in the data here, right? So it's just a gradual, continuing month-to-month -month increase in article views of this content. So there is a statistically significant drop-off in the middle over June but it's still increasing over time. But there's an issue with these results. Does anyone spot it? It's the two extreme outliers there at the top. Yeah. So you see an extreme outlier in November 2012, and then another one in July 2014. Can anyone tell me, there's some people who know this because they know my research. Anyone here tell me what might have happened in those two months that might have caused a radical increase in the views of articles? during those months? Can anyone think of a common event during those two months? What's that? The months again? Uh, November 2012 and July 2014. All right, I'll end the puzzle. I call this the Hamas outlier because in those two months you had two Israeli offensives in Gaza. So in November 2012 you have Operation Pillar of Defense, an ATIDF operation. The views for the Hamas article alone skyrocket, so you get a million views that month. Similarly, in July 2014, you get another Israeli um, uh, offensive, Operation Protective Edge, another Gaza conflict, July 2014, you get a ra rapid increase. So what's happening here? So what seems to be on these particular dates, which is consistent with some other research done, um, Brian Keegan, who did some really interesting work in Wikipedia, he's a, a affiliated with the Brooklyn Center, and some other work done on other social media platforms, um, is that likely a news media event is bringing maybe a population of new users. There's a media event. Um, people come to Wikipedia to learn about it. Um, so there's prior research that shows with certain kinds of media, it does have an impact on people's uses of Wikipedia and Wikipedia content. So people are going to edit after a news event. So maybe that's what's happening. But just keep in mind, I'll just flip back, keep in mind that the second part of this graph here where you see it's still increasing, the trend continues gradually. So what I do is I remove that extreme outlier and it provides us with a more clear picture of the actual trend in the data when you remove this extreme outlier. So here's my final resource and I'll have the graph up in a moment. But what I do is I focus on the 31 articles which had the highest privacy score. So the ones with the most privacy concern based on that survey. I add a security related comparator group. So that is, I mean, the, the, the difficulty here is that if you've got a 
control group that's really similar to your actual treatment group, that is the terrorism-related articles, then it's going to be captured or impacted by the same stimulus. That is, if you're looking at privacy-concerning content, then you're going to stop viewing it thereafter. So I thought security-related comparator group, that is, essentially it's a group of art Wikipedia articles that concern government agencies that deal with security-related matters. There's going to be some overlap there. Um, just to show the difference between trends with these two different groups of data. What I find is that there is, again, a statistically significant, highly significant drop-off over the course of June of 262,000 views, but the trend in the data changes. So before, you've got a gradual monthly increase of 30, 34,000 views month to month, but after, you actually have a complete shift in the long-term viewer trend. So now it's decreasing 44,000 views per month. So here's what it looks like. So at the top, so same graphing, but let me just explain a little bit more what you're seeing here. So same interruption of the time series in the data set. The top lines you're seeing there, the darker lines, that actually represents what we're focused on, the group of 31 terrorism-related content, which had the most privacy-sensitive articles. As you can see, it's a little bit more of a steep incline, so there's more viewers leading up to June 2013. There is another drop-off over the course of that month. But differently here, you see the trend now is that it's constantly declining all the way up until August 2014 at the end. So by contrast, at the bottom, you see this is my comparator group. So this is the group of security-related articles, which have sort of a gradual, almost a constant sort of level of viewership over the course of the study. There's a slight, not statistically significant drop-off in June 2013. And there's really no significant change in the trend. It just seems to continue on post-June 2013. So you can really see the contrast between the security-related articles and the privacy-concerning ones surrounding terrorism-related content. So what are some implications of this? If I'm right that this is evidence of a chilling effect, it seems to me that it's not just what I was expecting based on a chilling effect hypothesis of an immediate or sudden sort of chilling effect over the course of that month, but maybe something that I wasn't expecting and that contradicts some of the research uh, that's out there on chilling effects, that there might be a long-term chill. That people just, over the long term, they're not realizing that no one's going to the jail. They're just concerned with being flagged by government, being um, uh, characterized or being caught up in some data sweep by government, something like that, that might indicate. It might also be constant roll-up of awareness of the data. That is, as more people learn about the Snowden revelations, fewer people are viewing this content. I think the better explanation might be the first one because of the high penetration of knowledge based on that Pew Internet survey that as of the end of June 2013, 87% of Americans already knew about it. I think there's some interesting insights as to the impact of war on chilling effects. So the Gaza conflict seems to ameliorate the chill, if that's what's being represented here. That might it might just be, I'm concerned about government surveillance, but I'm really interested in what this global event is, so I'm just going to view that data. That's one explanation. Another might be just the Gaza conflict, and this is consistent with other research and other platforms. Gaza is just this unique event that brings new users to platforms that are just interested in learning about and talking about um, Middle East conflicts in Gaza. So that might be another explanation for that data. I think it has implications for legal standing and the constitutional litigation, not just Wikimedia, but others. And of course, we can talk about this a little bit later when we get into Q&A. Um, surveillance, democracy, and access to knowledge, given that Wikipedia is such an important and popular tool um, uh, online for people's use of basic information. So that is one study. I'll, I'll try to tie in these two. There's, of course, limits with this study. The data is limit. I'd like to use going forward, because I want to build on this study, use a more sophisticated approach to my comparator group, collate more data sets to make the, the analysis more robust. And I'll talk a little bit more about those limitations later. Because I do want to talk, before I'm done, on the DMCA case study. So this actually involved um, 500 Google blogs and 500 Twitter accounts that received DMCA notices. I'll explain a little bit in a moment what that means and uh, for those who are less familiar with the DMCA copyright scheme. Um, for today, I want to focus on the, just for the sake of brevity and time, I'll focus on the blogger side of it, the 500 blogs that received um, DMCA notices. So the DMCA, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, it's a 1990 statute. Um, that aims to police or enforce copyright on the internet. 
um, how it essentially works with this very handy EFF um, uh, graphic here. So let me just explain this in the context of, say, Google Blogs, because every platform is going to be slightly different. Excuse me. So you have the right to. So say then I'm somebody that's posted a video online. I own the copyright in it. I see that some blogger on Google Blogs has taken my video and posted it without my permission onto their blog. I send a DMCA notice, and this is all automated, you can send them electronically online. I send a DMCA notice to Google Blogs to inform them that one of their users, their bloggers, has posted without my permission the video that I had posted online. Google then usually disables the content in the context of Google Blogs, they'll often take the Google blog post, make it, put it into draft form. That gives the user an opportunity to edit the, the blog, add different content, something like that. And they'll, of course, inform the user that they received this notice. The user then has an opportunity to either repost the content or file what's known as a counter notice. And that is essentially saying, no, I actually have a right to post this content. It's entirely legal. I have a legal defense like fair use. Um, and if I file a counter notice, then the content can be replaced within the next 10 to 14 days. That might lead to a lawsuit. This scheme has been described um, and has been criticized by volumes of legal um, scholarship, essentially saying that it it's, has a chilling effect on activities online. So the idea is that there's a lot of legal content that's being captured by these notices. And I can tell you that there are literally millions of these notices being sent out every single day. Um, Wendy Seltzer, uh, uh, one of the original Berkman fellows here, has described this, I think, quite accurately, or at least I'm testing this claim. I think my results back her up. She calls this a chilling effect architecture. That is, it's a regulatory scheme that really favors a chilling effect on users uh, as against free speech and other kinds of activities online. A little bit more about my methodology and design, of course. So what I did was I've got a random sample of 500 Google blogs. My sampling frame, a little bit older with what I was doing with the data set. It was earlier in my doctorate. So my first case study that I completed June 20, uh, January 2012 to July 2014. So it was sampled from them. Each recipient blog, so every blog that received a DMC notice and the notice. So it, I visited each and coded for a range of variables, including whether the content was online, offline, whether the blog was suspended or locked. Locked is more for Twitter, where you, you protect your Twitter account. Um, it's very easy because in the DMCA notice, you've got a, often a URL to the content that's being targeted. I also looked at and coded for potential legal defenses, for example, fair use. And I also had follow-up questionnaires to essentially get some more granular data, basically asking, so why didn't you repost? What was the reason? And so a blogger could say, well, it's because I, was, I didn't want any trouble with the law, even though I think I had a right to do so. What were my findings on this? So just to give you a sense of what was in that sample, so these were the blogs. These are the kinds of blogs that were actually targeted in the sample. So um, quite a broad range. So um, the largest being actually a category of other was hard to really categorize. It was a little bit unclear on the face of it. Of course, you get a large uh, categories uh, of like cultural, business. There's, of course, adult and spam in there. I was expecting actually more of that in the sample, but I think Google blogs, you get a lot of people blogging there. So you get actually a lot of text you'll see in a moment where people are being targeted. So a broad range of blogs being captured. Also in terms of the content being targeted, also a broad range. Again, because I think blogs are a text-heavy medium. Um, a lot of the um, content that's targeted by the notices in my sample was actually text-based um, text sort of claims. So excerpts from other um, articles and news were actually targeted by DNC notices. The next larger sort of category, you have images, you've got video, and you've got mixed. So a broad range of content being targeted here. I think if you look at other mediums, it's going to depend on whatever medium you're looking at. So what was the actual impact of these notices? So here, this is a, what you're seeing here with this graph is essentially of the 500 notices or blogs that received of the 500 blogs, 88% of the content targeted by the notices. 80% um, when visited was, the content was offline or inaccessible. 12% was accessible and still online. So that's pretty significant at these notices. So it's targeting a lot. So a lot of the t content that's being targeted is now offline. 
breaking that down a little bit further, and it gives you a little bit of indication of what maybe this content is. So of that, you still have the 12% that's online, but this gives you a breakdown of what's offline. So 43%, so the, the strong percentage of content offline, the blog is still there. So the blog's still going, still exists, just that post is no longer there, right? Or the content has been removed. So the blog post is there, but the, the, the image that was there is removed, right? And there's the sort of like a image removed thumbnail, you'll see. You've got another large percentage, 32%, the blog is suspended. I think these are the pirates because that suggests that you've got a blogger that's violated terms of service more than once. Maybe multiple DMCAs have been arrived. And so you've got probably a lot of pirates capturing that 32%. Then you've got another interesting category, 32%, uh, sorry, 13%, where the user has deleted their blog or they've relocated it. Um, that could be somebody who's a pirate and they, they're like, the gig is up, I've been found out now that I've received the DMC notice. Or, more worryingly, it could be somebody who's received this, is so frightened about being sued, they've just shut down their blog. Right? And that would represent a pretty significant kind of chilling effect. Uh, that all future speech based on this blog might be chilled. Hey there, of bloggers who made their blogs private rather than deleting them or uh, or having them suspended or whatever. Right, right. So, so that would be. So, I actually categorize that under uh, the blog is there, but the content is now uh, offline. Sorry, sorry. This was categorized user deleted, relocated, also locked. Right. So under the thirteen percent. Right. So the blog's still there, it's locked. Um, that was a smaller percentage in the blog, more in Twitter. So you had a lot of people that received DMCA notices and they just make their Twitter feed protected after that date. Okay, so let me break this down a little bit further. Only a few more results slides and then we can get to q and I want to leave at least half an hour to talk about this because uh, it's great to get your guys' thoughts on this. So um, what I have here is a cross-tabulation. So it's the same sort of breakdown you saw a moment ago um, but cross-tabulated against potential legality of the content. So what this means is um, the first sort of um, pie graph that you see there, that's the content that's online. So the, when I, the content that was targeted, it's online when at the time of the study. The second one is the content is offline. So 72% of the content that's offline, but the blog is still there. Um, that uh, 72% unlikely any kind of legal defense. However, you still get 17% of a possible but unclear legal defense like fair use. And then even in a smaller but still, I think substantial percentage, 11%, they likely have a legal defense. So the content is likely legal to some extent. Um, further down in the other subcategory of user deleted, so again, large percentage, likely it's copyright infringement, so 75%, but still, in both the blog suspended and in the user deleted side, you've got a substantial percentage there um, of content that likely or could potentially be legal in the circumstances. So the concern here is, is that following along with Wendy Seltzer's idea, is this a chilling effect category, is this a chilling effect architecture? It seems to be, right? That users receiving these DMCA notices are chilled and they're not replacing the content they're leaving the content offline, even where, in a lot of cases, their content is likely legal, or there's at least a good case to say that it's likely or possibly, or at least a good argument that they have a legal defense for. So there's a lot of legal content being captured by these notices. Some additional findings here. I found a modest inverse relationship between the strength of the fair use or legality claims and whether the content was offline. Put more simply, there was a statistically significant association between how likely the content was legal and whether it would be online. Um, that was similar with Twitter as well. You might, on one angle of view, conclude that this means maybe that the DMCA is actually working to an extent. That is more likely that there's some legality there, the more likely it's going to be offline. If it's less likely to be legal, more likely it's going to be offline, more likely to be legal, more likely to be online. That's one angle. But looking at it from another angle of view, you might say, well, that's true, but it also seems to be capturing a lot of potentially legal content and expression online. And people are being chilled when receiving these notices. Um, I found no evidence of 
any counter notice, and this is consistent with findings and other studies, that counter notices are very, very rare. And finally, and I thought this was really interesting, and I call it, I'm not sure what to call the phenomenon, I call it Stockholm Syndrome, I'm not sure what, but amongst the blogger category, there's only 15 instances where the blogger on their blog speaks of or mentions either the DMCA or copyright. On the Twitter side, only 12 instances. And in the vast majority of cases, they're either neutral in their tone about the DMCA or copyright, or in some cases, favorable about it. How do I explain it? Maybe this is, um, think of the Sonny Catyell's work about um, copyright surveillance. If you see him and notice, you think somebody's watching you, so you may as well say, you know, I'm going to be from here on out. I'm going to speak favorably about this because I know someone's out there watching me. Hard to explain, but that was the finding. Maybe it's an example of a notice. It's not just a chill receiving a personalized legal threat with the notice, but also the idea that there's people out there watching what you're blogging. It leads to a kind of, in Dana Boyd's terms, maybe a content collapse. People are sort of shifting their, their voice, their identities, their approach to certain things. I'm not sure where that might be one explanation. Um, of course, there's limits with this as well. Uh, my data set was limited to 2012 and 2013. I had a low response rate in the questionnaire. It's getting people to talk about this. Uh, very difficult. Uh, complications with the legalities, I and mean, there's a lot of assumptions built into my legal work because a lot of the blogs captured um, in the study were also international. I have some graphs. I don't need to put them up now because I want to get to discussion. Um, a lot of blogs that were international, and in ways you would argue that the DMC has become almost an international copy enforcement policing statute for the world um, through automation and through implementation online. And the fact that this is really a study that's focused on Google blogs and on Twitter uh, and on the fact that um, other platforms would likely lead to different results because every platform, and this is one of the ways that you can might critique the DMCA, every platform is going to be dealing with these challenges in different ways. Um, tying these things together overall in terms of my overall implications here, and let's say a few final things. I think both case studies suggest um, both the existence and potential persistence of regulatory chilling effects online in two different concrete contexts. We're talking government action and surveillance, and another we're talking a chilling effect related statute that is policing legal norms online. Um, one is government related, but the other is enforced often by private parties enforcing their legal rights, and both can lead to very similar kinds of chilling effects. Also, the subtle conforming effects of these regulatory regimes. Avoidance of certain content in Wikipedia, content left offline in the DMCA case or the Stockholm Syndrome that I, rep that I mentioned there. Um, I don't think it, I think they also show there's no really one single overarching theory to understand this phenomenon or effect. I think in some cases it's going to be a threat of real legal action and penalty and prohibition. That's the DMCA case. These notices are a personalized legal threat and people are concerned about real legal repercussions. But I think if my evidence is right about the Wikipedia study, the explanation there has to be something a little bit more, uh, less to do with concerns about real legal punishment and more concerns about what Daniel Solov talks about, sort of broader concerns of almost environmental pollution. This idea that surveillance is like a pollution. You don't want to be caught up, labeled or targeted or categorized as a nonconformist or as a threat to the state. And finally, I think there's, this provides a real window into the potential scale of the impact. One billion takedown requests per year under the DMCA uh, regime. In the Google, sorry, in the Wikipedia case study, we're talking large numbers of people viewing this content. I just looked at one subset of, 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 of content. You could see this maybe reproduced on other platforms. One platform, even though it's very popular. What's happening on other sites? Alex and Catherine saw a similar result with Google search. So I think that gives a window into the potential scale. So I'll leave it there, and I look forward to your questions or comments. But thank you. So with the first study with the Wikipedia, um, I doubt this would really change the result. But I was just curious if you looked into maybe normalizing some of the data against either Wikipedia traffic in general or okay. Google search. Or so I, I, I realize I didn't have a chance to mention this, but 
actually that that migration does control for all Wikipedia traffic to English Wikipedia. So, oh, okay. so it includes traffic to mobile, desktop, sort of all platforms. So, um, that's part of the, one of the slides that died as I was trying to uh, skim this down. Uh, but thank you for the question. Right. So this does control for background Wikipedia trends, and there is some different trends. So mobile traffic is constantly on the rise. Desktop traffic, depending on the year. Um, is you know gradually decreasing. Neither really can explain what's going on with this content. Ryan and then Alex. So this was all super uh, interesting. And I think, uh, clearly represents a lot of really interesting and hard work that you've been doing. So congratulations on uh, on doing this and uh, and and the attention that your work has been getting. Um, I was wondering about the the trend lines. Um, obviously, in the Wikipedia data, you know, there's that big change in uh, in in June, you know, 2013. But uh, but just like how when you saw that that the Hamas, you know, news stories were creating, you know, peaks and valleys on certain terms. I was wondering, you know, how. Uh, how much there was noise like that on all of the other terms that you were using, maybe not to such an effect, but you know, like like a pipe bomb goes off in Cairo, and so people search pipe bomb, and that peaks, you know, for for one, you know, a few weeks, and then right. and then that goes down, and you know, and so whether how, how you accounted for for sort of that general peaks and valley. Uh, if at all, when thinking about, you know, that like maybe in the, you know, you know, 14 months after, you know, if there were just fewer news stories and you were getting about pipe bombs, right. you know, that was, you know, simply, uh, and so, so, you know, whether there was any attempt to match up search terms with other news sure. stories. Sure. So I think the, the, the first approach, I mean, the, the key approach there is you're looking for, um, uh, outliers in the same way with, like you say with that Hamas article right you, you, you're looking for instances of data points or um, elements in your data set which is having an outsized influence on your results and it was quite clear uh, with Hamas I can say there were other um, outliers in the set um, for example Palestinian Liberation Organization was an article that received during the same um, period of time, November 2012, July 2014, was another article that also had an escalation in views. But it wasn't so much, uh, it wasn't, the, the difference wasn't enough for me to justify excluding it. And actually, if I, if I switch back to the original graph, you can see some influence there. Um, I, and I think even here, you can see an influential data point just before June 2013. I didn't really investigate that. The key thing is looking at diagnostics for the model. And if you find something that really is having an outsized influence, investigating it, trying to understand it, and providing, as I said before, results before and after. Um, I think the difference here with my final results here is that overall, compared to the initial results, um, there's a lot more noise in the first set. When I focused on the more privacy-sensitive terms in the 31, you can see here, look how tight um, the data points are around the trends here, both for the terrorism-related content, but also the more security-related ones. There's still a little bit of noise in various places, um, but I think there, to make sure that you're, you're, what you're showing here in terms of the results, in terms of the expected predicted values of your, of your results, that there's... Uh, no real outsized influence. There's maybe an outlier there, but it wasn't extreme enough to justify excluding. But, and also, thank you for the kind terms at the beginning, right? Thanks. So Alex, and then Nate. First, I should echo that. I think this is very interesting work, and it's really great that you've been trying to put it together, and I think focusing on Wikipedia is an excellent idea. Um, <clears throat> the main question that I have relating to that study um, deals with the list of security-related terms. Right. Um, perhaps you could talk a little bit about the choice to develop as a comparator a list of security-related right. terms sure. rather than, say, a random sampling of, right. of Wikipedia pages right. on general topics. Um, and secondly, if you could go into a little more depth um, on how you chose the sure. security-related Wikipedia sure. sites. Sure. Um, so... And, and I think this is this is one of the areas of, of the study that I'd like to move for, moving forward um, to have a, a little bit more of a sophisticated approach to um, matching with the with the comparator. 
Um, so how I came to to uh, choose the security related, so it was basically on, on two. One, I wanted to, based on two factors. One was um, a voting bias, right? So um, uh, I don't want, I wanted to avoid the bias of people accusing me of, you know, basically s selecting certain sort of articles to include as comparator. Um, I considered a random sample of articles, and here's why I think that wouldn't work, and that was sort of the feedback that I got, is that if you just sort of um, gather a group of random Wikipedia articles, um, that's probably going to um, track certain trends. So there's going to be subcategories of content, I think, that you see in Wikipedia that different events are going to influence, right? So if I added a comparison here of, say, Wikipedia content of random articles or Justin Bieber, for example, if I showed his sort of Wikipedia uh, hits over the course of the same period, it would give you some sense of some other trends. But I think the critique of using that as a comparator would be is that it's too different from the terrorism-related content, such that whatever trends you're seeing in the, my focus here being the terrorism-related content and my hypothesis of a chilling effect sort of impact, would be too different, too different from the random, randomized sample that would do otherwise. So I guess you could say my choice was using a sort of a normative matching approach. And the challenge here, and I sort of hinted at this when I discussed my methodology, is that we can't have a, I can't have a perfect control group here, right? Because it's not an experimental setting. Um, ideally, you would have um, people who were exposed to the stimulus here, the surveillance. You can isolate them from those who uh, um, also were viewing uh, Wikipedia articles on terrorism-related content. You could isolate it that way in a perfect experimental setting. Yes. <laughs> Let's talk about that after. Um, exactly. Unfortunately, here everyone is potentially subject to the stimulus, and you saw high penetration there, 87%. So you need to find a comparator group that is close enough to terrorism-related content, but not so close that it's going to attract the stimulus, such that it just looks like you have the same sort of trends here, and you can't tell whether there's a chilling effect or you're just packing, picking up some background trend. I thought the security-related articles made sense, one, because, again, it's um, I'm voting bias. I'm just using the, the same sort of set of keywords from the same document, but just security-related. I figured there would be overlap between people, um, so there would be overlap between people viewing terrorism-related content prior to June 2013, and might be also, if they're interested in that, maybe they're viewing stuff on the CIA and Department of Homeland Security, right? But post-June 2013, they wouldn't be so concerned about viewing those same sites in the way that they would be viewing car bomb, dirty bomb. So there might be some overlap, but I think that's the challenge, unfortunately, with this kind of design and a non-experimental, it's very quasi-experimental. And so I thought that was the, the best justification to come up with, with for the comparator group. But I think going forward, I like to employ more sophisticated matching, propensity matching, this sort of thing moving forward. And as I correlate other data sets, it'd be great to have that conversation with you because I know you're, you're, you, you guys do a good job of it. Um, but I think the idea here was get something as close to possible to that content, but not close enough that it's going to be going to attract the same impact so you could see the difference here. I know, I know we've talked about this before, um, and I, I really appreciate seeing this all unfolded. That's really nice. But I'm curious, you set up at the beginning uh, actual opinions from judges okay. saying this thing is not like meaningful or substantial or various other things. Like, How does something like this, or does something like this ever have impact on what happens in the courts? And what does that path look like? What does that path look like? Um, well, I think absolutely. Um, what I mean, one of the challenges often with um, litigation, in particular constitutional litigation, that a lot of these constitutional claims with respect to surveillance in particular, um, as you saw that early case decades ago in 1972 in Lerton Tatum, um, there's often been concerns about whether how, like, how to prove these kinds of claims, right? Often they're described as subjective, speculative, um, uh, not, uh, not cognizable injuries. And so I think built into those assumptions, right? I mean, there's some legality there. A lot of these claims fall on standing grounds. So the idea that you actually don't have standing to show that you have, you've been injured to sue on the basis of a violation of your first or fourth or uh, uh, amendment rights. 
before the courts. And that's essentially among the, some of the grounds that Wikimedia Foundation along with the ACLU have launched their lawsuit. They actually lost at the first instance in the federal court, uh, essentially on standing grounds amongst others, right? And so I think having an empirical foundation, I'm hoping, um, and I think that having an empirical foundation for these kinds of claims, showing that chilling effects are not necessarily um, speculative, they're not merely subjective. There's actually an objective basis for this kind of concern. Certainly, I think it can help the Wikimedia um, uh, litigation, but I think it can help some of the other some of the other surveillance-related litigation out there as well. Um, there have been, and I know this in other related litigation. There's some great survey studies that have been done relating to chilling effects. Um, done by some Berkman-affiliated researchers at Pew, for example, that have asked um, important questions about how, you know, asking respondents how your knowledge about the surveillance revelations in 2023, how has that impacted your behavior? I think all of that provides a great insight, and that, that has been cited in briefs that, are, um, uh, that have been filed with courts before, right? Um, I think they've been successful in some cases in persuading courts. I think some of the cases out there, it's a bit mixed. Some have succeeded to proceed. Some have failed on standing grounds. And I'm hoping that this study adds another sort of angle, um, another data-based angle uh, to provide more empirical foundations for those claims. Sure. So if we could imagine, like I'm hearing from you maybe two mechanisms. Sure. One is like, and one is like an impact through methodology, where right. if someone thinks that they've experienced the chilling effect, like their platform, they could do research like yours to show that they have a standing. Now, like we did novel research and we found it and we used Penny's methodology. Another is like through citation, where someone says, exactly. I've experienced what Penny said happened on blogs and Wikipedia, and we know that it's a real thing because it happened to other people. And then there might be a third category, which is, going to lawmakers and saying, you're about to like consider new laws about this. This is one outcome that other similar laws, are those like the three main? I think you've things? actually set it up much better than I could for the next five minutes. So I, I think you've actually captured it perfectly. So on the one hand, some of the litigation out there, which I've been thinking about because uh, it's related to Wikipedia. Um, uh, so there's the, the litigation context, there's the lawmaking context, which is the one that you've mentioned I think is um, really important. And yes, the third, the research, some of the dynamics were the, the great Google search um, research done by Alex and Catherine, um, which is a Google search, which inspired my research and hopefully our research inspires others to do similar research on other platforms, drawing on similar designs and similar forms of analysis. And I think all three, I think you've articulated them very well, I'm hoping, is the movement forward. But I think maybe the easiest one in the end is just getting lawmakers on side to reconsider some of these government policies. Right. Oh, sorry, uh, this gentleman here. Yeah. I was wondering if you look at, at the source of the traffic in terms of countries to see the composition of the traffic for the Wikipedia. So if I looked at... At the source of the traffic, which countries are the origin of the, of the visits? Oh, so, right. So great question. And it's one of the limits of the, the, the data. Um, so I don't have, so in the data that's open, that Wikipedia yeah. has open, the Wikimedia Foundation offers, doesn't have geo-specific, ge geographically specific data. So I don't know um, who is accessing from where. I mean, there is some data on, I think a lot, a very high percentage of English Wikipedia is actually American. So American, that, that I think that's like maybe 90% could have that wrong, but I think a very high percentage of English Wikipedia traffic comes from the United States. But yeah, I, I think internally they have that data, and I think for privacy reasons they don't release it, understandably. But I think that would be another really interesting element to add to this, to understand whether there's a disparate, whether it's greater or not, exactly. Retrospectively, whether the content should have been legal or not, uh, and have access somehow to what the blog looked like before a DMCA notice happened? So um, in the cases where, so, and, and this is, this is and you, you flag one of the, the I think the, the, the challenges with a study like this, right, on the, on the legal side of things. So um, often it was, it was actually pretty apparent um, from uh, what was actually captured, right? So 
um, sometimes you'd have a very tiny thumbnail that was actually targeted um, by the DMCA, right? So, uh, and that was easily described in the DMCA notice. Um, I use an approach that used a very narrow, um, so uh, in terms of looking at potential fair use defenses, some of it's very obvious where, for example, content in the blog post, for example, um, a tiny excerpt from an article that was flat, that was targeted by DMCA notice. Okay. Um, that's described using the DMCA flag, and it's no longer there, yeah. but it's quite obviously on the face of the DMCA notice that it's actually, yeah. that's right. And I think part of it, that, and because I used a very conservative, restrictive approach, the percentages that I had up there of like, there is no legal defense. If I was unsure, it was just so you're exactly what the excerpt was. You could you could infer from the description from the DNC notice which is would actually just copied an entire book chapter say into into their blog. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And uh, and in often cases, for example, the Twitter side, uh, you you had for example, it'd be maybe a link that was going to infringing content, which itself is not necessarily. Um, uh, a, a copyright infringement, merely linking to something. Uh, but putting that aside, you'd have other content in that tweet which was basically um, removed. It was very easy because you'd visit the tweet and it'd say it's been withheld for copyright reasons. Ever be a copyright infringement? It could if you've got other things attached to it, right? Yeah. Right. At the back. I wanted to ask you if you had any thoughts about solutions for a chilling effect of this magnitude? Because does it fall, do you think, to the ISPs or the OSPs in between who are sending users these DMCA requests? Or do you think it falls on government to try and regulate this a little bit? I think it, it falls on a number of different uh, shoulders, I think. Um, I mean, there was just a few years ago um, a, you know, a large public debate and protests and activism surrounding new statutes, so SOPA and PIPA, you know, Stop Online Piracy Act, um, and basically the claims made there with respect to the DMCA was a failure, right? That it actually wasn't effective in policing online piracy, and that we needed bigger, tougher, uh, more stringent, more invasive um, forms of regulation to enforce copyright online. And I think there's a bit of an empirical vacuum in, in that, right? Um, so on the one hand, I think that, those kinds of debates should be informed by uh, empirical findings and empirical studies. So I think um, on that side, it falls on legislators to maybe look at the DMCA and, and ask, is there ways that we can rein elements of this in so that it continues working? It, it polices um, a copyright online or a copyright infringement online, um, but also maybe have some better safeguards uh, and what does that mean? What does that look like? Um, well, there's other kinds of um, online and uh, policing systems. So in Canada, for example, my native home, Canada, has a notice and notice system, um, which is effective, actually, in having um, a lot of content that is targeted uh, removed, but it actually doesn't lead to, the, or sorry, it actually is very effective in preventing infringement from reoccurring. There's been a number of studies done on it, or at least secondhand data that's provided by ISPs and OSPs online. Um, but at the same time, it doesn't lead to immediate removal of the content, right? Notice and notice means a notice is sent to the OSP or the ISP. It's then sent on to the user in question, but the content's never removed. It's up to the user to decide if they want to remove it or if they want to continue with their activities. And I think that's uh, a better balanced approach maybe than the DMCA, which is also effective in policing online. So there are other solutions out there that could be considered. So I think it falls on legislators. Uh, I think you know, Google has been a leader in being transparent about how they approach this and providing their notices um, uh, to the Lumen database uh, so that research like this can be done. And the sense that I've had when I've dealt with um, um, companies like Google, you know, they, you know, they don't like having to police this stuff, and they're looking for ways that they can do it better. Uh, and so, I think it is on companies to take that kind of a, an, an attitude and approach to that sort of thing and be more transparent. So, I think if more companies provided more data to Adam, uh, and some more research could be done, I think that can that can help. <laughs> Adam's like, no. Um, so, I think I think it falls on the companies to an extent to do their best in policing this so they can balance, because really each platform is going to have a different approach, and, a pre and I appreciate that in some cases it's going to be very resource intensive to deal with this kind of uh, a problem. 
Um, but it's a model that's growing. Um, it's expanding to other kinds of legal norms, like the right to be forgotten uh, uh, in Europe, um, which also has a bit of a notice and takedown mechanism to it as Google's been implementing it. So, or notice and removal of links. So, I think it. It. I think the responsibilities for researchers doing research on this, to lawmakers coming up with better balanced approaches, and also um, companies doing their best to acknowledge. Um, that there are legitimate interests and competing interests on both sides of these questions and do your best to, to implement safeguards while at the same time policing copyright infringing activities online. Yourself and then here. Sorry, I'll, this gentleman here, he's had his hand up for a bit and then I'll come oh, back. Okay. Up to Nate's question, um, I was just curious uh, with the litigation from Wikipedia, if they had uh, also made economic claims to the extent. I mean, they're a nonprofit, but people donate, and so maybe those views caused them to lose money. Um, was that part of it, or? Um, so in that particular litigation, I mean, there's a range of different organizations involved with the litigation. I can't recall if they made specific sort of economic harm arguments, but I think it's easy to infer based on the claims that were made that it was having harms for their foreign readers, domestic readers, having an impact on um, Wikipedia editing and other kinds of activities. So I think it's easy to infer from that that um, it's going to have an impact on on the bottom line, both of companies that might be affected. So, if we're not talking about Wikipedia, we're talking about we're not talking about Wikimedia or a platform like Wikipedia. We're talking about a profitable platform. It's going to have an impact, likely. But even with 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 Wikipedia and Wikimedia Foundation, you're right. It's they you know they need benefactors and they need users. And if usage is suffering due to this kind of online um, activities, that's going to impact um, their user base. Uh, and their readership, and likely their viability as a service over the long term. And I think it'd be really sad if you lose a great service like Wikipedia. Would the user be subject to further legal action if they don't take down the offending material or the objectionable material voluntarily? So with the notice and notice system, so it's called notice and a very awkward name, but it means like two notices are sent before, before the copyright claimant can go to court. So a notice is sent to, yeah, so let's say you've got a telecommunication company um, and I, I, I send a notice to a telco or I send it to Google, then I send a second, that notice is then um, passed on. Yeah, Don't nothing's removed. Act, yes. You're subject to further legal litigation. That's right, right. That's right. So no content is removed. A notice is delivered. If the activities continue, a second notice is delivered. And then once two notices are delivered and there's a bit of a time period, then the copyright holder can go to court and then sue and obtain user user records from the OSP. So it, you have to send two notices and there has to be, it's basically like a waiting period. So the idea behind it is there's an educational period. So maybe the person doesn't know what they're doing. Yeah, exactly. You know, even if it's inadvertent, you still get a chance, right? It's not so that's an alternative model which yeah. has seen some success, but yeah. it's also one that's been criticized too, so as not being tough enough on online TV. I don't think so. Sure. With regards to this research, can you apply this to data streams that are sent overseas to either American nationals in foreign countries or to people overseas in Europe as a supporting evidence that there's a chilling effect? Could you prove harm in a court somewhere? Could you um, get standing? To, oh, to get standing, using this particular research <laughs> yeah. or using other... I mean, other this will help, right? I mean, you're going to use yeah. this as contributory evidence? Right. I mean, I think, I mean, so every every jurist, every legal jurisdiction is yeah. going to have different standards for what's a justiciable question, what you need for yeah. standing and to prove harm. Um, but I think that so every little bit every little bit of evidence sort of helps. it's the Ninth Circuit or it's overseas in Brussels or something. Right, or right. And at the very least, I think, if not in litigation, as, as Nate pointed out earlier, I think it might have, it has an impact on, um, uh, you know, privacy treaties, privacy agreements. There's different arrangements being um, negotiated now. So that we had the, previously we had a safe harbor agreement, so the, so the EU privacy directives and how um, uh, European citizen data is being handled by American Canadian companies. A lot of this stuff is being renegotiated. There's been a new general directive that's just been released on privacy. So all that's going to have an impact. And I think having a little bit of evidence of the impact of these kinds of activities will influence that process as well. And whether it's in courts or in 
um, amongst governments negotiating these types of agreements. So um, I think that's that's the aim, and I think I think. Well, maybe they're, they're they're watching at home today. See where this heads. The rise of automated notice systems, such as the content ID system for YouTube, maybe. Sorry. Um, with the rise of automated notice systems, right. for yep. example, the content ID system uh, yep. for YouTube. Um, did you differentiate between like automated notices and manual notices, and did you find a difference in, with regard to the chilling effect or with regard to accuracy? So whether right. content was actually um, so I, I didn't, but that would be a great thing to do in a in a future study. Um, and 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 I'm not sure if does the the Lumen database actually distinguish that in the notices? I think it's we don't we we. Not officially, we have the opportunity to tag notices, right. so that could be possible. It's usually, if you're looking at a specific notice, it's usually very easy to discern whether it's an automatic notice or not, right. just because the automatic notices are pared down to the bare legal essentials, right. and the more crafted ones tend, tend to have come from the human being. Um, if the systems you represent are usually both sent by and received by automatic systems, and then they get passed along to the user in that form. Content ID is actually both automatic but not a DMCA system. Right. It exists in parallel. Yeah, so right. there are... Yeah, it's like before the... It's what I would describe, I mean, excuse me, I would describe that as a private ordering system, yeah. which has many parallels but um, is lateral to the DMCA and it relies in part on it, but the idea of looking into whether people are more or less responsive to receiving an automatic versus a personal yeah. notice is an intriguing one. Yeah. So, I mean, the closest, the yeah, the closest thing do I have to what you're asking, so I did track, so this is the one way in which you might be able to extrapolate um, automated notices in the, in the, in the sample. So, um, Usually looking at DMCA notice, if you have just one URL that's being targeted in a DMCA notice, um, that's going to just be a, it's often a person, right? So what I use as a sort of a proxy for robotized or automated DMCA notices is where you had 10 or more URLs in there, right? So that's, you've got a lot of URLs that are being actually targeting. You have notices now where you've got like a thousand URLs in one notice that's being targeted, right? So if you look at the percentage here, um, in my sample, 54% was merely one URL, 16% um, was two to nine URLs, and then maybe in that 30% that's capturing um, more automated notices being sent, which is targeting a lot of different sort of um, data for takedown. Um, what I will say is that I think today that I mean, I'm working off data from 20 total to 2013. I think today you're going to see an even higher percentage um, moving forward. Uh, it's all going to be automated. And, but I think it's a great question. Is there a difference between automated, how companies that use an automated response to this, and how, that, how does it compare with companies who are just doing it by hand on a, on a DMCA notice-by-notice -notice basis? So I think that's a great question for future research. Sure, one more? Yeah. found in your research um, when you were gathering the data, demographic data, of who was accessing or trying to search uh, probably more for the Wikipedia articles um, and whether or not the chilling effect affected certain groups more than others, perhaps more that are like creating right. an inequality of those who feel that they have to self-censor more than others. Right, know. right. So I, again, I think this is a great research question. Um, so it's a great question. Um, I would be unable with this data set to do it, right? Um, even if you add the granular level in the data of having um, geographical sort of indications for, uh, or sort of some, some data points on the location of different users and views, right? Our view counts by particular geography or our, our country state. Um, I wouldn't have that level of granularity, but I think, I think you could do that but I think it's going to be more of a qualitative study, right? So you get a, a sort of subsample, and I think it, I think there, I think there's an opening there to do this kind of a research, because uh, I think there's a real need for it. 
uh, is to have like a subcategory of users that might have been impacted, right? And you just do like a deep dive and you do questionnaires, you do uh, long form uh, interviews and just to understand what impact this might have had. And that, that's how you can import uh, more demographic information. It's going to be harder with this kind of this high level sort of data set to have that. Uh, another would be to, to do a survey, gather your own users, that and then gather um, data about your users through your survey. So my third case study in my doctorate actually is a survey which compares different what I call chilling effect scenarios. Um, I won't get into that. That's a whole other um, Pandora's box, if you will. But in that I do with the internet users captured in my survey, I do have some demographic information there, um, provide some insight. Um, but it would have been great to have that with the Wikipedia study, but I didn't have that data. But I think it'd be great to do that research in the future. Great. Thank you so much for coming down. And thank you to everybody else for a great discussion and some, some research questions. I gotta get up. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Yeah, the automated one is, um,